there was this time on the dating apps when people would just be like, 90% of what I say is sarcastic. If that was actually true, then you would be an insufferable fucking being. <laughs> <laughs> You're just like basically Chandler Bing in real life and yeah. nobody's interested. Well, Jessica and Zach from the day they were born They started watching comedy because it was on She was a golden girl, he had Seinfeld on the brain They said a nine-year-old Frasier fan might just be insane Harry and the Hendersons, Mindy and Mork Now Jessica and Zach get together and talk They'll never say the sitcom's glory days are gone They'll still watch it because it was on 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 Is it too early to set up a Patreon? And I'll call it Because it was on 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 Hello and welcome to Because It Was On. We are like that fancy film podcast, but for people who like to talk about that episode of According to Jim, where Jim gives his buddy such bad advice on what to give his wife for Christmas that she literally thinks he must be having an affair. My name is Zach, and my boss insisted we join a Model UN with other businesses as a team building exercise. And Janet from accounting went mad with power and proclaimed that Sweden need Lebensraum and invaded Papua New Guinea. And I'm Jessica, and I accidentally offended the barista at my favorite coffee shop, so then I had to drink the weak coffee from the office, which caused me to fall asleep in the big meeting, and now my boss is very concerned about my iron lungs. I don't, I don't like this infringement on my territory of workplace comedy bits. <laughs> this is... Jessica is trying to get her own Lebensraum right now, mm -hmm. invading my, my state. Yeah, you very much live in a workplace comedy. I do live in a broad scope sitcom, which means sometimes I do go to work, but most of the time, yeah. not. Yours is definitely the one where there's no consistency in what your job is. No, it's just... absolutely not. I In whatever sitcom universe in which I live on this podcast, I am like the Kramer of the group. Yeah. Uh, there's no consistency about what I do, how old I am, where I go, what I do, whether or not I am married or single, have children or not. We are watching the episodes out of order. The canon is that you went on strike uh, when you were working at AMC and you've been off ever since. Yeah, we take the reset button very seriously. <laughs> Each episode in whatever universe in which I live. Well, Zach, welcome. Good to see you. Let's tell everybody what it is we do here to get folks acquainted who are listening, perhaps for the very first time. Yeah, we are Because It Was On, and we are a podcast that takes uh, a look at the history and social politics of sitcoms with varying degrees of seriousness. Oh, yeah. We're here Sometimes to talk about you facts of life. Sometimes it's not. Yeah. There well, is well, a today, heavy... Heavy in, uh, like, uh, thumb on deciding which sitcom character is gay. And it's all of them. It's all of them. 80% of what we do here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Jessica, what are we talking about this week if they haven't guessed by now? We are continuing on with our whole 
winning episode idea of sitcom generations. So in this series, we are looking at each of the four major living generations today, boomers, Gen X, millennials, and Gen Z in terms of sitcoms, which shaped them and the cultural forces of those sitcoms. And then, of course, the the sitcoms as those generations came of age that best reflected sort of their cultural generational ethos. And last time we chatted with all of you, we talked about boomers. And now we are going to talk about our friends in Generation X. Yeah, uh, we're not going to forget about you guys. Uh, we're, you, you get your whole episode. A uh, whole episode? Isn't just that a treat for, for you? X. Because just Gen X Very much the middle child. Very much the red-headed middle child of Generations. They are often forgotten and we're here to tell you we see you gen gen xers they're like our cool older siblings they are the cohort born from 1965 to 1980 those are our gen x birth years that what do you know as like a reputation about gen x um some of what we've already said that they are the generation that's stuck in between the two big booms of the boomers and the millennials so they often get forgotten. But uh, when I think Gen X, I'm thinking the Brat Pack. I'm thinking Seattle. I'm, I'm thinking, thinking Seattle. I'm thinking grunge. Oversized flannel. I'm thinking I'm, old school Starbucks. I'm thinking cigarettes. I'm, I'm thinking, thinking Winona Ryder got arrested Winona for Ryder. shoplifting. Yeah, I'm definitely thinking Winona Ryder. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm thinking the 90s as a concept, just generally. Yeah. We're talking the MTV generation. We are talking the Pepsi generation. We're talking it punk. These girlies. We are talking punk. It is absolutely this game, these girls. Yes. Yes, absolutely. We are talking Woodstock 99. I'm also thinking the Stranger Things generation. The uh, latchkey kids and... Transformers, He-Man, Care Bears. Yes. I'm thinking, like, all of the special episodes that we make fun of, they were targeted towards Gen X. Gen X. They they were raised by pretty special episodes. Yeah. They absolutely were. I think the culturally what they are remembered for or defined by in terms of the posturing of the or the attitude of the generation, it is very nihilistic chic it is very nothing matters and therefore drop out and turn on never sell out the the 1999 world trade organization riot in seattle i was thinking of there you go yeah that's very much the attitude of the era they just always seemed just badasses that's how i always envisioned them yeah the cool older sibling Absolutely. Yeah, they were the cool older sibling. I feel like I didn't have and still don't have that many Gen Xers in my life. Yeah, my oldest sister would be a Gen Xer. It doesn't fit any of those stereotypes. She's lovely. <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> she wasn't exactly like throwing a Molotov cocktail in Seattle in 1999. Which I, mean, I think leads us to our disclaimer about the usefulness of broadly 
speculating or broadly ascribing traits to a group of millions of people. Yeah, it's, it's junk sociology a little bit. Yes. It is. It's a funzy way of talking about like history and just, oh, remember this, remember when. But this is a huge disclaimer about this being a super hard hitting thing. Watch the Adam Ruins Everything on Generations. This is something when you talk about generations, you are ignoring race, class, like geography. We all have our unique little experiences and it's impossible to cover all of them when talking with a generation lens. Yeah. It's meant for like incredibly mm -hmm. broad strokes way of thinking about things. If you need any more evidence of that, whatever generation you are, Google, why is my generation so whatever and Google fill it in and you'll take a look at that and read it and realize that maybe some of those things apply to you and some don't because again, it's somewhat junk sociology and what we're going to be doing here is definitely junk sociology, but it's going to be for funsies. Yeah. Fun fact. I just realized about this. I said, I never once in my life had avocado on toast until that guy said the thing about avocado on toast and it got repeated so much that I was like, avocado on, <laughs> on toast sounds bussin'. Uh, I think I'm going to go for it. <laughs> and now I have avocado on toast on the regular. I love avocado on toast. That's why Zach will never own a home. Yeah. I was like, fine. Yeah. Like he literally, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Babe. Easy trade, babe. Give me that avocado toast. That's how suggestible I am to like on television. It's just like some CNN talking head is like, oh, okay. Yeah. I'll have some avocado on toast. <laughs> I became the monster they said I was. Yeah. I also ride around in my pickup truck every night killing Applebee's and napkin industries. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I can't so wait to talk about millennials next week. Let's talk about Gen X. Let's get into it. You can see like the first influence, I think, of Gen X when you look at the television that was made for them as children, mm -hmm. because it's different than the kind of television that you would see that you saw with boomers. Um, yeah, definitely. But I do think what's interesting here, too, is like boomers by far are the cleanest generation when we're talking about their relationship with television and with sitcoms. Whereas when you get to all other following generations, it gets so much muddier because Gen X television shows marketed to them were different, but they were also consuming reruns of what the boomers watched. Gen X yeah. was also consuming the Brady Bunch and the Partridge family and the Adams family and leave it to Beaver. All of those shows were still being watched while additional media was being yeah, absolutely. You see a lot of recycled media at this age, which will become a theme later on. Literally, the genesis for the show is that we watched a lot of recycled media, which past generations media is very cheap content to throw in at the late hours of the day or whenever. And first thing to mention is that Gen X had a lot of that influence of past shows. Yeah, but I call out because I do think it's actually important for the development of the Gen X ethos as they come into adulthood in the 90s. So mm -hmm. that's the only reason I call out. They are consuming those shows that do have a heavy emphasis on the perfect American family. The Leave it to Beaver, the Brady Bunch style 
a, a mother that stays at home, a father that goes to work, and children that are always they're consuming a lot of this type of media as children, which again, I want to put a pin in for as we talk about what evolves from this generation as they come of age. But go ahead, Zach, tell us how media for Gen X children was different than the preceding generation. Um, so Gen X is the first sort of latchkey child generation um, where there was a huge boom in both parents working, um, especially the higher you go up in the economic strata, the more likely it was that both parents were professionals that had some sort of arrangement for the kids to spend an extended period of time by themselves. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a full-time like homemaker at home. And um, so you see a lot of kind yeah. of a television being created with the assumption that it's in a way raising children. Yeah, kids a lot are more... coming home and watching it. They're latchkey kids, right? The the term latchkey kid was created to describe the Gen X childhood. And for those who are unfamiliar with that term, uh, a latchkey kid was a, a child who had a key to their home because when they returned home from school, their parents were not home. And so they were a latchkey kid. They had a few hours at the end of the day between school and when their parents came home where they could just do whatever the fuck they want. Those were you ever a latchkey kid? Yeah. Were you, my happiest, this, oh. this may say a lot, but the happiest memories of my childhood are like during that sweet window where I was unsupervised. Amen. <laughs> and I was oh, just like was... eating spoonfuls of hot cocoa powder. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I was also, I was inconsistently a latchkey kid. Sometimes was a latchkey kid, sometimes was not. But when I was a latchkey kid, I distinctly remember coming home from school, absolutely eating every snack in the house that was supposed to be reserved. Those are for school lunches. Don't touch that during the, uh, if it's not packed in your lunch. I went to town on that. I'm doing like the country time lemonade mix and we're doing like 5X the powder to the water ratio <laughs> like you you drink it and it's like gristle in your teeth you know what i'm talking about it's like yeah. sandy and thick yeah mm -hmm. absolutely uh it was it was a wonderful thing uh, but it was at this time a new concept um and like adding on to what you were saying zach in terms of like based on income brackets you had two parents working the other thing that really contributed to the rise of the latchkey kid in this era, yes, it is a gutting of economic policy that allowed for a single income household. It was also the Gen X cohort directly coincides with the skyrocketing divorce rates that we experienced in the U.S. at this time that only increased from 65 when Gen Xers were born and they peaked in 1979. 1979 was the highest divorce rate year in all of U.S. history. You think, oh, divorces are on the rise and they're this new common thing. They have actually been on a downward trend since 1979. Uh, 1979 was the peak divorce rate in the U.S. It aligns completely with latchkey kids, with Gen X. So a part of why you have a latchkey kid is maybe you have a two-parent household where they're both working. But also you're seeing this new phenomenon of single mothers raising children and the single mothers are raising them alone and have to figure out a way to make it work 
and they are the income earner, and therefore you have kids coming home after school, they're thrown on television, TV is the babysitter. Yeah, which is why you get shows like One Day at a Time to really be our first actual media property that we're naming in this <laughs> media uh, <laughs> podcast in 1975 and things like that. You can see evidence of them sitcoms trying to accommodate the skyrocketing divorce rate. You can also see like when we're targeting young Gen X, they one thing to note about them is that it was a highly unregulated children's media market. And that's why you get like a very distinct Gen X children's content that was such a, it was just commercials for products. So you have Care Bears, you have G.I. Joe, you have Transformers. This is all content that the line between commercial and commercial and content was just so blurred and this would eventually would in spark regulation and so after 1990 this is when the birth of state mandated children's informational content was created and you get things like bill and i the science guy but for gen x it was the wild west yeah It's interesting because I think like a lot of the properties you named were in the 80s. And when I think about like media targeted for Gen X, I definitely think about the 80s. If you go a little bit earlier than that, I think what's interesting is what we said earlier in terms of like Gen X is almost this forgotten generation. Because in the 70s, your boomers have come of age for the most part. And they are taking up all of the oxygen in the room. So I'm not suggesting that there wasn't media made for children in the 70s. There was. But you can definitely see a turn in the types of sitcoms that are being created away from your standard Leave it to Beaver style sitcoms, where we're focusing on the core nuclear American family. And we're shaking it up a little bit. But the focus is for the most part, on adults and adult families. And so you get things like Three's Company and Mork and Mindy and Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley, right? These shows in the 70s that are focusing primarily on the lives of adults and understanding what's going on with adults outside of this nuclear structure. All of those shows in their own way have some elements of transgressiveness in terms of broadening cultural conversations and horizons. So Who's company dealing openly with conversations around queerness and those sorts of things. And I think Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley, again, doing this romanticizing and looking back that will happen a lot in the 70s and 80s. It's like romanticizing and looking back on the 50s and the 60s, which is a constant message that boomers or not boomers that gen x will get in their early media is this like romantic view of the 50s and the 60s but i think so with you when you look at like the sitcoms that were created for gen x i think it's interesting to compare them to the ones that were created for boomers because with you come with boomers they, the same dynamic was still at play, that there is a lot of incentive to have something that is enjoyable for both the adult and the child. And so you get things like The Addams Family, Bewitched, My Favorite Martian, and these sort of like whimsical, fun shows. And we do see a resurgence of that in things like uh, Alf or Harry and the Hendersons. 
where there's this blurring of adult content and uh, children's content. But mm -hmm. the ethos behind, like, the shows in the 60s for children, it was very, like, censorious, I, I think. It, it was much more tame and much more conservative in what they were willing to do. There wasn't as muchness, I think, until, oh, we were able to get away with this. But, but that really became a big thing when you come into the 80s of sneaking jokes in that. And so the kids won't get it, but you'll get it. And you also get a lot of content that is, again, the blurring of the content. So you get things later on in the Gen X generation with things like The Simpsons. And yeah, just it has a children's aesthetic, yeah. but it, it, it's very adult some of the time. Mm -hmm. And it, yeah. Yeah. And I, I also really thought when we're talking about media made for Gen X uh, and again, the 80s coming up as this critical time period, I was also curious in, in what you thought of this resurgence of sort of fantasy and sci-fi sitcoms that come out around this time period. We have, again, a research and we have Harry and the Hendersons. We have Small Wonder. We have out of this world, we have Alf, all of these sitcoms that are really making it big in the 1980s that are focused around this fantasy genre. And I was just curious if you have thoughts, Zach, on why we think this came of age again when it did, or that this came into popularity again when it did, and, and what potential impact we think this might have had on our lovely Gen Xers. Uh, well, I think it's kind of what I just said, that this was the, so if this was the first, this is the second time in the television industry's existence when a large cohort of children was coming of age. And the only institutional memory that the industry had was what was successful when the boomers were of age. And so their first experiments with trying to uh, uh, target Gen X was to, if it ain't uh, broke, don't fix it. And so they went, they dipped again into fantasy and sci-fi with their content. And yeah, and you could see that, it, I don't think it was as successful, but in the early parts of um, like Gen X, -y, the Gen X uh, reign, you do see this attempt to go back to what worked before. Mm -hmm. That'd be my take. Yeah, I think it's good, right? You did your market research. You saw what worked with the largest cohort of children around that age 20 years ago. You lifted it from the playbook. I think that's definitely a driving force here. I do also think that we tend to see a resurgence of fantasy shows when we have a general sense of optimism and hope for the future as a collective society, especially like a certain sort of fantasy show that is positivist and forward looking in its overall messaging around the science fiction being delivered as opposed to like a dystopian science fiction, which we see a lot of with millennials. But with the 60s and the 80s, these are both time periods in the US where there's a lot of sense of economic prosperity for now and for the future. And there's a large sense of consensus politically. These are both 
eras where we have pretty defined political leadership in terms of the party structure and the policy being pushed through and eras where generally the average person, I think, felt pretty high levels of optimism. And so I do think that you get a, um, you do get a lot of science fiction that comes out of those eras as a, um, as almost like a forward looking optimistic view of what the now and the future will be based mm -hmm. on these periods of prosperity and optimism that we see in the country. And I, I do would. have a developing theory on this, but, but go ahead. Okay. I would push back on that a little bit, or at least qualify uh, what you're saying as the, I, I think that generally that is the message of these shows, like a general sense of optimism and um, that there's widespread prosperity. But I would say that is something that these shows tend to be trying to sell, that there tends to be a conservative bent in these shows because the 1960s and the 1980s were a huge transitional periods in a lot of ways uh, where there was a lot of tension and a lot of discomfort. Um, so in the 60s, the Viet Vietnam was going on, race riots were happening, the civil totally. rights movement was happening, and there was this very disjointed from the reality media up in place because no television did not want to get involved in that shit. And then that sort of media consensus broke down in the 70s, and you had Norman Lear who, want who wanted to play with all those. Yeah complicated issues. In the 80s, we start to get conservative again. There is a lot of question because it's a big question with these latchkey kids of what am I leaving my children home to watch? And, <clears throat> and networks wanted to say, hey, you can leave your kids with us. It's fine. Your kids can tune in to us mm -hmm. uh, because we are not going to be controversial. We are not no. going to uh, dip into any of that shit. We're just going to give them small wonder. Small wonder and traumatize them worse than if we were to show them just like the most horrible. Again, <laughs> we get why the satanic pa panic happened. We've seen small wonder. Yeah, I lay entirely at the feet of small wonder. At the feet of small wonder. But I take your point, and I think you clarified what I was saying is these are eras where we, we are being sold optimism. Like optimism is the political currency of both of these eras, the 60s right. and the 80s. You're being sold by like the Johnson administration and again by the Reagan administration. Right. The currency of those eras is hope and optimism. And we get it again with the millennials in the Obama era. And so I have my burgeoning theory around sort of these generations is that if you are a child coming up in the era where hope is the currency, like that is the political messaging and the currency is like this hope and this prosperity that you will someday have. America will be this, this wonderful place where you can make it. Those generations like end up with this bitter and dissatisfied posture as they come into adulthood, which is why you see so many similarities between Gen X and Zoomers because they both yeah. came of age as children in this period of hope in this period of optimism that was being sold to them as the media messaging and then come of age and realize that it's all bullshit. It's never actually been true. And so that's why you see, I think so many similarities there. Yeah. But, Amen. 
before we get too far in there, I do want to talk about ALF as like the representative show of Gen X targeted media in the 80s, because I feel like you can get so much out of ALF. <laughs> it says First it all. of all, yeah. I hadn't really watched that much of it before researching for this episode. I don't know about you. Did you have a good he time? He ate a cat. I, I remember. That's his, all that's I, kind all of his this, thing. Yeah, that's literally all I would know is that someone would say Alf, and they'd be like, ha, he's cats. And I would move on from there. Yeah, he seemed to be some (laughs) sort of aardvark-like creature. And did I enjoy it? Yeah, I actually, I'm a big sucker for puppet 80s sitcoms. I love puppet 80s sitcoms. Here's my thing. If you have, if you're doing like a puppet 80s sitcom, and then you do a wide shot of that puppet, and it's just like a person in the suit walking around, sold. Bitch, yeah. I am sold. 100%. The worse you you commit to the the conceit, the more I love it. Did you ever watch Cousin Skeeter? Yeah. Oh yeah, a hundred percent on Nickelodeon. Oh yeah, yeah. I fucking loved Cousin Skeeter as well. Just that weird little puppet that's being tossed around by his family. Yeah, they were very self aware with that yeah. puppet. I don't know. I'll I'll have moments of self awareness, but for those unaware of ALF. I do think that it's an interesting one to talk about. It does exemplify very much like the 80s sci-fi of, of this particular era, but this, this show started in 1986 to 1990. It is about ALF, an alien life form who lands on planet Earth and has to be taken in by your average suburban family. And I think ALF is interesting for a couple of I'll tell you my two things that I really think you can use ALF to exemplify quite well. We get a lot of stories coming out of this time period. ALF, PT, Small Wonder. These stories where you have a thing that you, like a precious resource that we all agree is good and pure and needs to be saved and protected. And pretty routinely, the villain in these narratives is the government. The government is trying to take away this thing. And likely the subtext is kill it. So if you think about Alf, in the very first episode, the villain, who's the villain that knocks on the door at the end of the episode, and says, you know, we believe you're harbor- harboring a fugitive from another planet here, um, and we would like to take him away. It's the military. And I think you get this message over and over again in these, especially these 80s era fantasy sitcoms, uh, where the government is the problem. The government is the enemy, with, I think, a dash of corporations are, are pretty evil, too. Mind if I come in? Yes, I do. Fine with me. Mrs. Tyler, we've received an anonymous tip that you might be harboring a space creature. A space creature? Yes. Hairy, about three feet tall. Is, uh, is he considered dangerous? Hard to tell until we get in the lab. Uh And, um, what would you do with him if you did get him, you know, in the lab? The usual battery of tests. We'll see how it responds to intense heat. Freezing cold, high voltage, toxic substances, pain, 
sleep deprivation, inoculation, that's needles, and of course, dissection. Why don't you just pull its toenails out? You didn't let me finish. I think you get those in not equal doses, but they're both present. Yeah, in our fantasy sitcom episodes, I also made that observation about My Favorite Martian, mm-hmm. where surprising for that era, so close to the end of the McCarthy era, very anti-government, like whenever there was a representative of the government, it was always like a spook that was willing to illegally detain you or do all sorts of things to try to find that alien. And again, you have this sort of like anti-government sentiment in ALF, another sci-fi sitcom. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, you definitely get this anti-government point of view from the show. And I think if you compare it then to, say, Small Wonder, which is also has this anti-government, government is the villain. In Small Wonder, I believe it's the corporation that is also the villain. He's taken, he's stolen this information, these secrets from the government. Not from the government, from his corporation. That's a... Yes, Much more if he were point, to be though. found out, it would be, he'd be fired from his corporation. His perfect little robot baby girl would be taken from him. Vicky would be ripped from his groups. His weird little Galatea baby. <laughs> exactly. So I, I think like the point I'm trying to make is we're feeding our Gen Xers in this era, um, in e- almost equal measure, this idea of hope and optimism about the future, while also giving them messaging around you can't really trust government and probably you shouldn't trust corporations. Yeah, this has been like the bipartisan, I don't know, like a broad spectrum thing that you can always get away with is to convince condemn very obliquely the concept of corporations and the concept <laughs> of government just don't get into any specifics <laughs> but those are always like good stand-in villains for american media especially in the 80s yeah but uh, pretty much pretty always <laughs> absolutely but what i think it, it does for us is that if you're stripping away for this generation, government is bad. You shouldn't trust the government. They're going to take away your alien. Corporations are bad. You shouldn't trust corporations. They're going to take away your robot girl. And then you pair that with like this steady diet of media defining like this perfect core nuclear family, this recycled media that they're watching of the boomer era, which isn't reflecting their life. Because they are growing up in a situation where either both parents have to work, so they don't have that stay-at-home mom, breadwinner, dad mentality, or perhaps, because we're talking about the 80s and then into the 90s, industrial uh, jobs in America are disappearing, and middle class, the blue collar middle class is starting to out. So they don't have that breadwinner, dad, and that economic prosperity that they're seeing on these older shows. Or perhaps they are one of the many children who became a latchkey kid because their parents were divorced and they're now dealing with a single mother. So you don't have, you can't trust the government. You can't trust the corporation. And you don't, like the family that you were promised, that you were told is this perfect family that you should aspire to, doesn't really exist for you or for your friends. And 
the economic opportunities that existed in the past for you are also slowly disappearing. So you can kind of see how this ethos is slowly being created for Gen Xers of there's nothing for me. Mm-hmm. You can't trust the government. You can't trust um, you can't trust corporations. And this whole family narrative is all bullshit. So there's nothing. You start to see where nihilism, the nihilistic identity, and the anti-corporate dropout slacker identity for Gen X has its roots here, even in these silly 80s fantasy sitcoms. Yeah, so I had in my notes, one of the things I was going to talk about is the concept of capitalist realism. I didn't realize that I was going to be talking about it in the context of ALF. (laughs) Yeah, where capitalist realism, it has a few definitions, but the one I'm using is the one coined by Mark Fisher, where it is the idea that with the fall of the USSR, which also happened on Gen X's watch, they suddenly we enter this era where there is no real cohesive, coherent, external criticism of neoliberalism. There is no alternative that can be seen. There can be internal criticisms of how to rearrange the furniture, but there is no longer like this other that can be pointed to and is a constant source of criticism and uh, a need to justify yourself by that. Uh, and and it, Mark Fisher talks about this sense of nihilism, but also just like apathy and a complete hopelessness and not even understanding it as hopelessness. Where, where and you get, this is such very 90s and this sudden depression in the aesthetic that you get in the 90s. And you're getting Daria, you're getting the Seattle rainy gloom grunge aesthetic where there is there is no real hope that there is going to be any sort of labor movement that is going to happen. Reaganism is dominant. The the opponent to the Republican Party is the Democratic Party, which is trying to figure out how to be as close to the Republican Party as it can at this time and still keep its voters. They're just copying their homework. And it, there's this there is no helicopter coming. And there, there's nothing on the horizon and that is very Gen Xy. And so when you're talking about like how Gen X culture is influenced by events and vice versa, or like how the media. Yeah. Um, so you get like ALF, not, which is pre USSR falling, but no trust in the government, no trust in corporations, no real cohesive belief in any kind of people's movement or anything there's just nothing i also as you were talking i realized that this would be an interesting thing to point out is the evolution of the idea of the spook government is something that you can see in media because what in 19 in 1814 was it really something that a common man was concerned about that there were like the deep bowels of the American government. There were all of these things that were happening. I know that there were like um, 
Freemason conspiracies, but it really wasn't the kind of thing that the modern person thinks about, like the CIA and the FBI and these deep oppressive government that we imagine is they're like sitting around and there's a shadow council or whatever. And this really is something that came into the collective conscience, like in World War II, and and developed through the Cold War as the Pentagon originally was built as just an emergency sort of thing, like for the war, we are expanding our capacity, and there were actually plans to turn it into a library when it was done. And, but it stayed and the Cold War kept raging and suddenly all of the NSA and all these government agencies were being built and you were seeing their influence all the time. And there were all these headlines suddenly about the CIA being affiliated with overthrowing this government and them suddenly doing all this like creepy stuff. A lot of cynicism in Vietnam. And, and so there was this huge, like fundamental, like almost primitive like distrust of your government just because man you guys got a lot of shit <laughs> going on you you are a behemoth and that partially there's a lot when it comes to the rise of reaganism but when you see like spooky government folks that's what's behind this trope that you see yeah x-files yeah, or just hey i'm from the government hey i'm from the government and they don't even say the what agency they're from that's a very <laughs> yeah that's why the bad guy in ghostbusters is from the epa yeah oh yeah yeah a lot of that shit's flying around yes look <laughs> if we're gonna take big swings right now on blaming pop culture icons for things to come <laughs> much outsized to their perhaps immediate sphere of influence i think that alf is representative to us of something we uh, will see later with Gen X as they come into sort of their own control of developing and putting out their own media in the 90s, which is the idea of offensive and shocking comedy for the sake of, or, or, or I should say offensive and shocking comedy as some sense of commentary in and of its own right the idea that like saying something to be bold and offensive and i don't care who gets upset about it it's the truth it's funny i do think is like a very gen x concept that comes into being and i do think like alf is an example of this right so they're consuming this as children right so i'm not necessarily saying alf is in and of himself making offensive jokes but within the pilot of Alf, there is like a, he not consensually touched the wife of the the house he's living in. So that type of joke is happening. But oftentimes, like Alf is like, he's out, he's outrageous and loud. And he is making off-color jokes often. Mm. Yeah. He is like boundary pushing with the types of jokes he is making with this family. And so this idea that like, you can make these outrageous and offensive jokes and you're the fucking square if it's not funny which i think becomes a very gen x concept as we get things like south park that come yeah. out of gen x creators in the next decade yeah uh and to be 
to be fair to Gen X and this concept of transgressive comedy for the sake of transgressive comedy, in the context of what they were up against and what they were responding to, this pull your pants up boomerism where just we're not even where there's like this cultural understanding we are not even willing to hear what you have to say until you adopt uh, the signifiers of respectability um, which is a very like boomer concept Uh, it's like gatekeeping of you have to adopt our cultural mores in order for you to be part of the conversation this obsessive oh what shirt is he wearing pants pulled up Yeah, blue hair. And so yeah, there was this huge, there was this pushback, which I think was a understandable, cogent cultural response to this. If there is this prevailing regime of culture that is so obsessed with the aesthetic that is papering over things like the, the dark side of Reaganism, the, the, forgotten slums in the cities and the crack epidemic all and all of that that was going on just the gutting of welfare and the boom of homelessness and stuff all being papered over with this sort of brush your hair and wear a suit and just fascination with the aesthetic then obviously the thing to do is to just smear shit on your face it's just like, as a huge fuck you to that concept and which is a huge part of like where punk and grunge and all that comes from is we are going to be as offensive and in your face with our aesthetic as possible and so looking at it in 2023 some of it is a little cringe because we we are very downstream from that cultural point and, and we've definitely gotten the cultural runoff of it, a very poor examples of it, where stand-up comedians think that they can just, I don't know, just not have a joke. Yeah, or just like use racial slurs. Yeah. For, because it's comedy. We're at a different um, cultural point, but they thought 100%. they were doing something there. They weren't doing something right. Like you're, you are correct. Like your your cultural context there is 100. percent I think spot on. Um, but of course, like what it leaves behind is like, or, or what it, I I should say, what that sort of thread or that mentality centered was like maleness, cisness, heterosexuality, and whiteness, because those would be the things that. Because the others are, when it comes to like offensive, offensive comedy, those are the targets, right? It's a very, the ethos was often very like kicking down, kicking down for the sake of sticking it to the man was I think ultimately a lot of what was happening, which I think we, to your Mm -hmm. point. Yeah. But look, I pin it all on Alf. Yeah. Rest firmly on your hands. Yeah. It's on your very little paws, Al. So you could say, like, <laughs> in this sort of, like, vein of the Gen X culture, it's things like South Park, Daria, Freaks and Geeks. Yeah, um, we should talk about the 90s. Yeah, it, it's the good transition to the 90s. Very capitalist, realist, post-USS. Uh, we are, neoliberalism is here, and there's literally nothing else. Yeah, and, I would say the 90s is when, this is when your Gen X is really coming of age. You're, yeah. In the 90s, you're oldest gen xers are going to be 25 your youngest are 15 
right? Uh, 10, I should say, at the beginning of the 90s. Um, by the end of the decade, they're 20, right? So this is when they're really taking their sort of uh, cultural influence on, uh, not necessarily their political influence, but their cultural influence and their cultural influence. This is the whole mm-hmm. This is the yeah, um, it, if we're talking about the media, an important thing is cable is becoming big, and so you get a lot of a lot more media that does not need to be broadly palatable to everyone, and you can have like niche targeting of demographics. And oh. this is we're coming on the golden age of the black sitcom with things like a different world and a course and a single, but. Tons of stuff. Like th- there were tons of uh, black sitcoms that would reign in the nineties. Yeah, Martin hanging with Mr. Martin, Cooper. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Definitely a a big time for that. And like I think really the nineties to me, when we think about Gen X media, it is really I can I personally bucket it into three different categories, which is essentially like the family sitcom and the response to the family sitcom. It mm-hmm. is the like nihilistic anarchist sitcom and then it is the like in your face almost like post-punk sitcom which is just almost like the south parks of the world the mm-hmm. the transgressive offensiveness and transgressiveness as the as the commentary in and of itself those are the three categories that i would really define for our 90s gen xers Uh, And so I think maybe just jumping in there, a good place to start is with those family sitcoms or the answer to the family sitcom. Mm -hmm. And I think the groundwork we already laid here, which is growing up in that post-social movements era of the 70s. And then again, in that Reagan era, Gen X, they came a time where the perfect family that is depicted in a sitcom was really falling apart in front of them. Divorce rates were at an all-time high. These were the latchkey kids. And I think there was some sense of resentment of the idea of what a nuclear family was supposed to be and how it was depicted in television as this overly idealized, commercialized, and sanitized vision that didn't reflect the reality of what family life was like for Gen Xers as they were growing up. And this is where I think you get some key texts that are really reflective of Gen Xers that speak to this message, which I think are The Simpsons and Married with Children. Uh, Yeah, and just Foxness in general. Like, the Fox is a very, like, when they first came onto the scene, it was a very Gen X-y. That's what they were hitting for. But things like Roseanne as well are in a way a response to a classic sitcom. Roseanne often would compare herself to to other sitcom moms. And I, she's not that. Uh, I'm, yeah, and like, this I'm is no the real America. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I think Married with Children, the entire point of Married with Children is we're going to show you. So if, if what you have been given your entire life is this idealized version of what the perfect nuclear family should be. And it is all the way on one end of the sanitized spectrum. 
we are going to give you something on the exact other end that is as dirty and as gross and equally cartoonish in its exaggerations of family life, but on the exact other end of the spectrum. So you get a a family that's still together, but wishes they weren't. Mm -hmm. I think it's often insinuated that maybe, maybe they are actually in hell. And this is the forever torment is to be a part of the family. If anyone's in hell, these people are in hell. Like every line is just them screaming silently to themselves. Yeah. Sometimes to others. There's barely, <laughs> there is no heart. There are occasional episodes where they will have a heart, but there's always a perverse twist. Yeah. They have no interest in being in each other's lives. Peg, the wife, can't cook. She can't clean, nor does she want to. She is sexually interested in her husband, which is like it's this inversion of the frigid wife trope. The Gen X mom, she is she's very interested in sex. It's the husband who has no interest in her. The kid is a flunky fail out. The daughter's a slut and a party girl. And it's just them living their trashy lives as this family stuck together and glued together this equally huge and big and cartoonish version of a family that is directly talking back to the my two or was it my two dads? Not my two dads, is it? But you get what I'm saying. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. My my three dads. My five dads. It's my two dads. It is my two dads. But it, they're talking back to his father knows best. Yeah. Ideally. I, I think you can also say that this attitude with television is also a response in tastes to the sort of like overreach of the preachiness of the 80s. Oh, yeah. Um, of the very special episode and like the ultra wholesomeness high point of conservative television where everything was being papered over there was a strong appetite for to end that kind of bullshit or not to end it but they wanted to see other things a lot i so we do a lot of research and contemporary and sometimes we'll run across contemporary reviews for stuff and what you would hear a lot of time in late 80s, early 90s, is it being compared to The Cosby Show as the Saint The Cosby Show (laughs) has this reaction and like marketing themselves as we are not this sanitized image of the American family. We are. We're something else. We're a whole different thing, baby. We're real, baby. It, It is. It's been observed by a lot of people that there is this sort of dark irony about this deep dissatisfaction at the lot of the middle class American during this time, like Homer Simpson and the Bundys not being happy with their lives. And then looking back on it now from a millennial perspective, fuck, I'd love that house. Considering the keys (laughs) to the kingdom that Al Bundy had, because he was a shoe salesman. He was a shoe salesman, folks. Chicago. And his wife did not work, and he afforded a three, four-bedroom home, two-story home in the suburbs of Chicago. Her working for Payless. Exactly. <laughs> Homer Simpson, it's the same shit. Like, he, he is, he's a nuclear safety inspector. So he has, like, a real job. The joke is that he's just devastatingly incompetent. And they hire him so that they don't have to pay the price of, like, 
Um, but still, he's affording, again, a three-bedroom home. Yeah. The difference. I mean, the difference between The Simpsons and Married with Children, although they're very similar shows, I think The Simpsons has a tremendous heart. It does have heart, yeah. Uh, and Married with Children is incapable. Intentionally incapable of heart. Yeah. With the absence of... With the latchkey dynamic as well, this is really the buildup of the lines being very blurred with The Simpsons and like in other shows where it, it was, it feels almost as though the idea was to let kids be able to get away with watching this because there was a strong divide, even when I was a kid, of who was allowed to watch The Simpsons and who was not, whose parents Maybe were hip and whose were not. My parents were hip. I could watch The Simpsons. Could not watch The Simpsons. <laughs> I remember very I mean, rebelliously. Eat, your sh- eat my shorts. Terrible. In, tr- in true sitcom style, I do remember that when one fateful fall day when my mom was away, my parent, my siblings, who we were like sociopathic snitches on each other for everything. <laughs> were playing in the backyard and I sat there six inches from the television set like with my finger on the power button in case anybody came in and I watched the entire episode where Simpson gains three Homer gains 300 pounds to get on disability <laughs> it was so tense for me if you gain 61 pounds they'll let you work at home uh-huh that's the deal no more exercise program no more traffic no more blood drives or charity walks dad I know we don't do a lot together, but helping you gain 61 pounds is something I want to be a part of. Dad! Ah! I must protest. You're abusing a program intended to help the unfortunate. <laughs> I'm not saying it isn't sleazy, honey, but try to see it my way. All my life, I've been an obese man trapped inside a fat man's body. That's, uh, yeah, it's funny that that's the exact episode I was just referencing, where he said it's a bird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've always been destined to have that episode be a part of your life. Yeah. That's what I'm learning here and now. So yeah, so in the 90s, you do get this reaction, I think, uh, to the idea of a nuclear family and to the preachiness of, of the 80s that is a, a direct result of the lived reality of the Gen Xer childhood bumping up against the media portrayal and a push for going as far in the opposite direction as you possibly can. I do think as well as Gen Xers grew up, the economic prosperity that they were promised as part of the Reagan era was undone and hollowed out by the Reagan era. And the financial viability of a career and the things that somebody could achieve as a young person was becoming more and more difficult during this era. The price of college was starting to skyrocket. Yeah, and this is where we see young people really encouraged to start taking college. There was pretty high underemployment for young people at this time, and there was a big sort of resentment for the way that generations that preceded them had this optimistic vision of sort of social change that they were trying to enact, that they just kind of sold out and voted for Reagan to hollow out, basically, the economic futures of their children. And so we get this nihilistic, cool kid posturing 
that really comes around at this time. And I think the show that best represents this, and I, again, I'll put my cards on the table, the show that I think best represents Gen Xers, period. You get Daria. Daria is a good example. I mean, it's quintessential. Daria is Gen X. Daria Um, is Gen X. Did you watch much Daria before this? Were you a Daria head? I wasn't a huge fan, but yeah, I'd watch Daria. I'd fuck around with Daria. I'd seen some, yeah, exactly. I'd fuck around with Daria, but it was never my go-to. Beavis but- and Butthead was like garlic to a vampire for me. I couldn't, it just was nails on a chalkboard. I hated Absolutely it. Absolutely nails on a chalkboard for me. Although I do like other Mike Judge properties. I'm a huge King of the Hill fan. I love King of the Hill. No reaction from you. That means I hate King of the Hill, but that's okay. No, I mean, I just, it's established canon that I did not watch King of the Hill. I just, I'm she, glad that Kathy Najimy. She got a paycheck. long-term paycheck. Yeah. Yep. And probably still gets residuals from it. Pretty good. Yeah. She's so. good. She's got that King of the Hill money. Uh, which, again, King of the Hill was another uh, Gen X show, I, I would argue. But talking about Daria. Daria was a, again, we have our MTV generation. So Daria was a cartoon sitcom that ran on MTV. It was a, it started in 1997. Again, it's another Mike Judge property. He really had a string of hits. But Daria was about a teenage girl, Daria Morgendorfer, who is uh, she's going to high school and she's just living the day in and day out of your average quote-unquote high schooler of the time and I do think there are a couple of really interesting things about Daria that are reflective of Gen X in some ways and so I'm going to start this by talking about the fact that I think Daria did a lot of really good and interesting things so I do think that it centers a teenage girl and it takes her seriously. It takes her concern seriously and her friends seriously. It treats her as very smart. In fact, the smartest person perhaps in the entire show is Daria. I think all of these things are excellent. I think that Daria often makes very good social commentary. As I mentioned, like the rising cost of college, there's an entire episode where Daria's family, who, which is well off, is struggling with the idea of how they're going to send their daughters to college and is basically doing like a Sophie's Choice of which of their daughters is going to go to college because they can't afford it. And they're basically flirting with the idea of like how they're going to just sign their daughter up for a bunch of debt so that she can go to college. And again, this is a well-off family. I believe the mother's a lawyer. So it's, it is making these comments. So I wanted to make that clear that I am pro-Taria on the before I say that I think um one term that we have a lot now in like the TikTok culture is a pick me girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You pick me? So a pick me girl is a girl who is anti-girl anti is a girl who is herself feminine and beautiful, but is anti-feminine, right? She aligns herself with the desires of the patriarchy and the male gaze in order to 
get picked by men. I think pick me is our current sort of iteration of this type of girl. Prior to this, like the millennial version, I believe we had manic pixie dream girls. And then you go prior to this, and I think we have Daria. And Daria is like our anti-cool girl. Daria, I don't think, is the same as a pick me, right? She's not necessarily aligning herself with the male gaze. She's not necessarily like she's not necessarily like asking for sort of male attention in that same way. But Daria does not like other girls. She is. Would the term not like other girls add to this conversation? <laughs> That's what I think Daria is. She's not like other girls. I'm not like other girls. Exactly. That is the, that is, if you're looking for the, bingo, you hit it so on the head with that. That is the thread between Daria, the manic pixie dream girl, and the pick me girl, where we're mm-hmm. in the evolution today. The thing that threads the three of them together is the sentence, I'm not like other girls. That's Daria. That's the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. That's the Pick Me Girl. And so I really do think Daria is the first character I can think of that actually fits this quite well. I'm trying to think of a character that precedes it, that has this foiling, I am not like other girls. Where The main thing about them is that they're consistently talking about how they hate other women that is yeah, like most I, of daria's bag you could think so if you think about rhoda for example she has a lot of characteristics in common with daria maybe she's often the smartest person in the room she's often unput uh, off-putting to men because she's funnier than them and she doesn't have a lot of the I mean, absurdly, the text of the show wants you to believe that she doesn't have the uh, feminine ultra beauty that other women have. And so she has to fight with her mind kind of thing. Exactly. But but with Rhoda, she has tons of love and solidarity for other women. Yes. Uh, Rhoda sees that we're all in the same fight. Yeah, she is never like throwing other women under the bus in order to like advance herself or her self-conception where her self-understanding is not based off of placing herself above other women. And by the time you get to Daria, similar in a lot of ways, but she does often almost unless you are a friend of Daria, you are... The, like and if you are a woman, you tend to have this valley girl accent. You tend to be very airy. You tend to be wearing revealing clothing a lot of the time. Or if you're older, then you have this sort of airy news anchor, benzoed out suburban mom, completely checked out. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And that's what is going on. Just not a lot of respect for anyone other than Daria yeah. and her friend. Now, she used to be very popular, but then there was that unfortunate nose job. That one behind the tiger, she was new and cute, so she became, like, popular overnight. Those three aren't popular at all. I don't know what they're doing here. Maybe some kind of exchange program. But what's with that girl with the glasses? Her face looks weird. All the same color. She's not wearing makeup. Is that a new look or something? Brr. Scary. Exactly, Daria, Daria, and her soul friend. Right? If you're, if you are an alternative girl who's rejected the trappings of femininity, then you are worthy of respect in the Daria books. 
But if you are a girl who chooses to be feminine, you are scum in the Dariaverse. You are absolute trash. Like regularly, um, Daria will really be rude to her sister, Quinn, who is uh, Daria's younger sister. And she is stereotypically beautiful, but they make her dumb as a box of rocks. Every other beautiful girl on the show that is canonically beautiful that men are interested in are also portrayed as complete idiots. Absolutely. Lights are on, but nobody is home. That is a very consistent thing within Daria. And what I think is so, again, we've moved on in the cultural conversation, so it just feels so gross, just absolutely icky is that Daria's sister Quinn is 14 years old and is regularly preyed upon by grown men, and Daria blames Quinn for it over and over again. There are two instances I can think of where Quinn was like straight up preyed upon by grown men, and Daria made it as though this was like in Quinn's control. One, both of them are taking college entrance tutoring, and the tutor asks for special sessions alone with Quinn to tutor her one-on-one. Daria acts as though Quinn is such a slut and a cheater for being, again, the insinuation is that this grown man wants to sleep with Quinn because she's a pretty girl. She's 14. And then when they go to the college campus, all of the men at the college campus fall in love with her and make her the frat queen goddess. And she's got this upper hand in the getting into college because all these men love her. And again, Daria blames Quinn. Again, she's 14. The 14 aspect makes it really dark. I didn't yes. think they were that young. Jesus. I got to check again. I'm pretty sure Daria is 16 and Quinn is 14. Uh, let me see if I can find out how old she is. I, I'm almost positive she was 14. Because I agree that when I learned that, I was like, Whoa. Yeah. She was 14. The age of the, I looked at like the Daria wiki. So Quinn's age in the series, obviously they don't age because they're cartoon characters. She's somewhere between 14 and 15. Okay. And again, regularly Quinn is preyed upon by grown men and it is played as though she is the slut. She is the one inviting this attention and has control over this. And I just think it's foul. Yeah. Again, I'm generally pro Daria for what it was trying to do to be like, I am going to have a show where finally, for once, the protagonist of the show is not this woman who is just this stereotypically gorgeous woman who who seemingly has it all. But then you make that girl's defining trait. I'm not like other girls. And I get my superiority by being better than the other girls, those girls who care about those feminine things. It just is foul. Like, it doesn't hold up to me. Yeah. I Cultural development takes time. And I, I think that Daria is very much like the antithesis to a lot of also very foul media. And and so what it's so funny that this is true and like this particular media property 
is so significant in my mind. <laughs> but to me, the synthesis of like when we officially resolved this conflict and we had a coherent answer to this uh, question of the not other girls versus that we should have a right to have pink <laughs> and uh, not be dehumanized for it. It was Legally Blonde. Legally Blonde was... The it rise arrived of on the scene. Feminism. Yeah, it, it arrived on the scene. It looked at these two warring tribes. The Dar the Darius on one side, like throwing their spears, and then the the power girl power, like pink. We need to be pretty. And it looked at these. You are allowed to both be intelligent and also have your own own aesthetic and to do things for yourself and not live. That is the only way to escape the male gaze is to have your own culture and if you like pink girl you like pink it's fine absolutely in Elle Woods we trust uh, mm -hmm. I, I completely agree she's um, literally like the Karl Marx of just yeah. there was a thesis there was an anti-thesis and there was a synthesis that is legally blonde I but I, I wish that that she solved everything for us clearly we still struggle with this but I do think like you see a shift from like millennial and Gen Z conceptions of this example versus Gen X rules. Because as you see, even properties that came out far after Legally Blonde fall into yeah. this exact same trap over and over again. Point, a point in case, or case in point, look at any script ever written by Tina Fey. It's all oh, over. Oh, yeah. Look Tina at Fey. Rock. And look also at just so many of the big hits when like millennials were teenagers like skater boy is just like her just talking shit about some random girl that did nothing to her yeah <laughs> pink has this whole song called stupid girls about yeah. demonizing women who want to grow up to be dancers pink you're a singer bitch you dance <laughs> like, like girl that's what you're doing sis you're literally yeah. doing trapeze shit and like on <laughs> but like pulleys Exactly. Exactly. It, it is a curse that has stuck with Gen X creators. And look, don't, please do not misunderstand me. Listen to the 30 Rock episode. I have a deep and abiding love for both 30 Rock and Tina Fey. But they have the Daria DNA in them. They do, I yeah. believe Tina Fey watched Daria and said, this is my shit. I believe it. It's there. And it, it, again, it's it's all over a lot of Gen X developed media. If you want to circle it back to the concept of capitalist realism, this is like a very like neoliberal, very individualized, atomized way of interacting with to conceptualize the problem that feminism is trying to address. Instead of having any sort of like movement, instead of having any sort of like solidarity and like taking a concerted like movement approach to confronting these forces, instead I'm going to lean back to do nothing productive except promote myself within my own conception as better than everyone around me. And it's just like a very individualized kind of feminism that isn't interested in actually doing anything, but just like rearranging your own internal mindscape to make the world better. I can't do anything about the fact that, in your example, men are using their power for, with 14-year-olds to yeah, get them to do private tutoring lessons and stuff because they want to get into college and that sort of shit. But I can make myself feel a little better 
by adopting an ethos where I put down other women <laughs> and I can at least do that. So it's a little, Absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm so sorry. I wasn't planning to come for Darius throughout this. But I was just like wildly as I was watching, watching it. No, it's totally Gen X. It's like that sarcasm being synonymous with humor. You know what I mean? Like that's people their... for sure. <laughs> yeah, where there was this time on the dating apps when people would just be like, ninety percent of what I say is sarcastic." If that was actually true, then you would be an insufferable fucking. <laughs> <laughs> you're just like you're just basically Chandler Bing in real life, and yeah, nobody's interested. Uh... Yeah, very Gen Xy. Yes, which Chandler, very Gen Xy. So and let's then, age up Gen X. Do, you, do we want to move on, or do you have? Do we want to age up? I was gonna ask in terms of like '90s sitcoms, uh, where do you think Friends falls in the pantheon of Gen X '90s sitcoms? Because it is not, it is not viciously political, and I'm just curious as to like how you think it jives. I think that there. Like we said at the beginning, there are a lot. We could talk like broad strokes about what's going on, but different people were having different experiences in this time. And with friends, you get very aspirational um, sort of young adulthood where everybody is upwardly mobile. Everybody is living their dream. They're living in a city. It's very like young person fascination living in a city. And you get... Yeah, just like that sort of like friendship group focus, mm-hmm. not on a family. And so I think family just have this, has this like boomer vibe to it with television. And so a show just about young people. It was the pull for living single. Like it was just about li- living people, young people, and like their family wasn't part of the equation or like they yeah. were guest characters. Yeah, I um, agree. It, it, it is almost like as though, like we talked about how there's this there was this fantasy of what your life will be like coming out of like a prosperous time in the 80s or like an optim a politically optimistic time being sold in the 80s. Uh, Friends is like, what if that were reality? It's the fantasy of what if the things you were promised or dreamed of became real for you as a 20-something. Yeah. Um, when, so one other major, like, force that was being, uh, pushed on, uh, Gen X is the American economy was rapidly shifting from a manufacturing economy to a service sector economy. The service Mm -hmm. sector was growing, uh, exponentially, and it's pretty much just assumed, assumed by the time you get to millennials that at some point they have worked a service sector job. And... Gen X was like experiencing this. And so you get in Friends a lot of this very optimistic view that I'm working these like low end shitty jobs now, but you know, I got dreams. Soon I will run Vogue. Yeah. (laughs) You're going to rise straight to the top. And so, yeah, it's very idealized, optimistic view of what was being proposed as the system working. Yeah. See everybody f- ascending, ascending to the sky. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's interesting too thinking about friends. I mean, and again, I, I already drew a parallel before between Gen X and Gen Z, 
they have a lot of similarities in terms of growing up as children in times where you're being fed um, by a media and by political messaging, this idea of hope and optimism, and then that's as you can Janex obviously gave us friends, and then Gen Z picked it up. It is it developed a huge resurgence and a devoted following among Gen Z. Gen Z, uh, really? When Gen Z hit Netflix, it was like it felt like Gen Z was just ripping it to fucking shreds. <laughs> no, Gen Z loves friends. I'll Google it. Gen Z. Maybe it was millennials that were ripping it apart. I could definitely see that. Ripping apart Netflix? Millennials love a good, bad, actually. (laughs) Yeah. Gen Z listeners, right in. Let us know. You like Friends? You into Friends? Yeah, they are. I mean, this is what what I'm seeing, is that Gen Zers picked up Friends. And my question to you was going to be, like, why did Gen Zers and young millennials pick up Friends? And run with it, but left Seinfeld in its grave. Is Seinfeld in its grave? I mean, it's alive with us, millennials, and it's live with Gen Xers and boomers, but it did not have a cultural resurgence in the same way that Friends experienced a cultural resurgence. There's no visit the Seinfeld experience. Yeah, I suppose. I think, it again, it is the... It's what Gen X, Millennials, and Gen Z were all mad about. (laughs) It's like just like a decade-long commercial for the reality that we were all promised and we didn't get. And we're fascinated by the image of it. It's just these people living like Mm -hmm. temporarily embarrassed Vogue CEOs. (laughs) And, And so... We just love the image of it. It's just like this complete image. Everybody can find who they latch onto in the friend group and then and what their particular dream is. One of the friends probably has some analog to it. And you just get to, they're doing okay. They're living in the city. They are successful in their careers. They're floating up. Absolutely. Yeah, we can't have that in real life, but we can have the image of it on television. Absolutely. I agree completely. And it's that fascination coupled with the fact that Friends is able to pretty deftly wallpaper over any real sort of political or social commentary. The insipid thing about Friends that we've talked about before is they do, I mean, they do have like homophobic messaging all throughout the show, um, racist messaging all throughout the show, but like the political messaging mostly is like the lack of it, like the lack of representation, the lack of inclusion is, is its message. But that is not as loud and clear of icky, this didn't age well as a show that was trying to do something like that, like Daria, or a show like Seinfeld that was more interested in going straight for the jugular with some of these types of more off-color jokes that they were more willing to make. Plot lines that are more aggressively addressing um, yeah jokes about like gay people or different races like Seinfeld will um, I think it's the same reason that like 30 Rock gives Gen Z the ick right like it's uh, a show that is takes a lot more swings and a lot more big and direct swings on like social issues and social commentary 
And whenever you do that, you're going to get stuff that really doesn't age well. This is true. Yeah. The Native American episode of Seinfeld <laughs> sticks out. Yeah, uh, yeah, I just watched one where like the woman pretends to be Chinese, Donna Chang. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Like, it, it's more willing to do those types of plots than Friends, mm-hmm. which it aside from like the fashion of the '90s and like the message that like the absence of inclusion provides, it is exists outside of any real like political context. Yeah. When you all, you, in this period, you do get a lot of like friend group or non-family sitcoms or uh, non-traditional, like Dharma and Greg is technically, I suppose, a family sitcom, but it'd be weird to put it in that box. And yeah, you do get like a lot of just like straight up married couple, no family. Dharma and Greg, you got Mad About You, you got Dharma and Greg, you. you got Mad About You, you get King of Queens, all Gen X. They're dipping, folks. People are not as interested, and also the economic soil is not really there for anyone to do any planting. Um, That is eroding. And Gen X is not necessarily interested in the idealized family anymore. And so they are much more interested in images of these freewheeling older adults than you tend to see before. You have like happy days, but they're young. Um, Mm -hmm. and so it's a friend group sitcom, but they're young. And so it made sense for that time period, but you see a lot of much older characters in these friend group sitcoms that aren't really tied down with family. And I think it's just because of, again, those changing dynamics of the economy. It's not very, it's not very fertile ground to getting married and having kids. And uh, also there is just this cultural disinterest in it. Sort of a chicken and egg thing. I don't really have a take on that. (laughs) Shall we move on to what our Gen Xers are, are up to in the 2000s and beyond? Yeah. When you get to the recession era, like 2008, 2009, we're aging up the Gen Gen X again. And so you do get The Office, you get 30 Rock, you get Parks and Rec of where Gen X is starting to enter professional careers. I would call these hybrid sitcoms. This is really when it gets messy. We're going to be talking about these next week. So I don't want to talk about them too much because they are very millennial. They are deeply millennial, all three. Yeah. Deeply millennial. But they are Gen X creators pretty much across the board. Yeah. And it just lines up with like where Gen X was at this time is they were entering the Liz Lemon level of their careers. You're at that point where at least a certain strata of uh, Gen X was entering middle management and these professional careers. And so you get a lot more storylines that are based off of that, but very millennial. And we'll talk about it next week. So I don't want to spend too much time on it. Uh, so for today, like what, what's going on with Gen X? I think they, they're sharing the screen stage with too many, too many, uh, other generations yeah, to really be able so to. It's so impossible to slice them up particularly. I actually tried to do market research on this to be like, I'm an advertiser. Where are they telling me to go target Gen X if I wanted to? And Gen X is more likely to watch network television than millennials or Gen Z, and just about as likely as boomers. But of all four of the main generations controlling the world right now, 
Gen X spends the least amount of time of all of them consuming media. I believe that hard. There's just there's something just about Gen X that I just find it. They're my favorite generation. They got Riz for sure. There's just a coolness about them. Again, they, like that's why I think there's just so much in common with Gen Z. Another generation that has like coolness about them. Yeah. Uh, millennials and boomers, we have no coolness. We no. have no chill. We are the titans to be vanquished. Like, yeah. Like, we, we're the, the millennials man. will be the boomers to the generation alpha. Like, we will be. Um, and I mean, I want to be a cool one. Like, I want to be a cool who's into the yeah. kids stuff. But, like, we will culturally be very similar in that way. I think. We'll have Gen Z um, as allies if we get this weird Ben Shapiro Gen Alpha. I wish. Pulp. I really do wish Gen Z were as cool with us as millennials are with Gen X. I have, I really got no beef with them aside from Daria. I don't think Gen Z has a big beef with us. I think it's all aesthetics, and I'm fine with you Hating going on how my, my aesthetic. pants are. <laughs> yeah, it's fine if you want to get on us about millennial pause. That's fine, y'all. Y'all assholes wear tails on the back of your pants. You're um, all out here dressed like Adam Sandler. You want to talk shit? But fundamentally, there is no Gen Z millennial beef. There is a millennial boomer beef. We're fine. We're going to be allies once you get a receding hairline. It's fine. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Wait. That's what I tell them. Wait until somebody tells you your genes don't make sense anymore, and then you will understand my pain. But this is so trivial. Yeah. Um, What was I even saying? Oh, Gen. Yeah, Gen X. They they have they have a swag to them. I have this memory. I don't remember what documentary it was, but it was about eco-terrorism in the 1990s. And someone, I think, tried to blow up. It was either a power plant or they were, of course, they were going after the forest in Washington. Of course, that was going to get blown up because Seattle at the time, don't fuck with Seattle. And so they did some kind of eco-terrorism. And for whatever reason, they were being super chilled, the legal system with this pre 9-11 with just okay just report to prison at this date but if they were like an eco-terrorist and (laughs) so they were like in this very like pacific northwest like cottage and stuff and he was just like the night before prison the documentary was like following him and he was just washing his gallon bags and putting them up to dry and i just remembered i was like Maybe 14. I was like, you're the coolest motherfucker on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> that to me is just very Gen X. <laughs> yes. Just, yeah. I bl- I try to blow up. I, I try to blow up some shit to save a forest. But now I'm just going to wash this gallon back because I need to reduce, reuse, recycle. Reduce, reuse, recycle, baby. <laughs> yeah. And now they're they're not watching much TV. But when they are watching TV, it's they're watching The Big Bang Theory. They're watching yeah. what's whatever's on network television, and they are much more of a consumer. They've uh, they've settled into a life of uh, the Big Bang Theory and two broke girls, and I think they're happy there. Oh, okay, yeah. And we wish you the best, Gen X. Really? We, if we're doing toot it or boot it for generations obviously we're booting boomers but we're tooting gen x we're giving you a toot we're giving you a toot <laughs> we have no quarrel with you i do have a personal quarrel with daria but yeah. i have no quarrels with you we love you 
Thanks for being like our cool older sister, teaching us uh, how to smoke. Jessica, this is the button. I asked the audience this in a poll when we did our aliens episode, but to circle it back to Alf, I have a very important question to ask you. Mm -hmm. Little alien puppet shows up in your backyard and the government's looking for him and he needs a place to crash. You call him the cops? Um, <laughs> I do recall. No, I'm never calling the cops. Never call the cops unless your home is being like broken into in the middle of the night. Uh, and that's calling services for him? Look, I'm a, I'm a live and let live. You figure out your shit. You got a cat. Um, yeah, I can't. I can't put my cat's life at risk like that. Uh, I do remember. I did see a tweet once that was like, "Man, I'm so glad me and the boys weren't the ones who found ET because we would have definitely hit it with a bat." <laughs> so that that comes to mind here. <laughs> you think Alf would be dead? <laughs> I don't think I would have killed Alf, um, but I do think it would have been like a live and let live situation. Look, I can't personally get involved here. So but you don't I'm have to go home, gonna... but you can't stay here. <laughs> exactly. I'm not going to call the cops on you. Um, we're going to be chill about it. Here, maybe let me get you a pizza to go if that's what you're looking for, but you cannot stay here. Alf would be living in my house. I believe I... that. Yeah. I believe that. <laughs> I think you are here for the chaos. I think you are a messy bitch. You would take Alpha in because Alpha is a messy bitch too. Yeah. I think we could, we would vibe. We'd get along with it. Alf, Alf can read a bitch to Phil. He would be good for the gossip. If yeah. you are ready to talk shit about the neighbors, it's Alf, baby. Come sit by me. Let's have a cocktail and let's talk about that bitch's busted manicure. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're, we're going to read it, Alf. You and I are besties. We're going to do a spinoffs that come. Alf could have a whole, like, resurgence where he just, like, reads bitches. Like, he just does, like, a drag race review show where he just, like, reads bitches to Phil. Oh, yeah. That's going to be the third member of his yeah, Alf. Yeah, it's just Alf. Like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That could be Alf's second act. It could happen if we just let it. Yeah, yeah, bring Alf back. That's the Alf reboot we need. We're rebooting everything. Bring back Alf. Bring back Alf. Oh, do you think that the reboot era is going to go as far as to one day rebooting a, a puppet show? Do you think they have that in them? They did Night Court, so it's not on a it's this not world that they would. The, it's an Alf Harry is not and the out of <laughs> Now, if you had to choose between an Alf reboot or a Small Wonder reboot, what are you choosing? I don't think it would be possible to reboot Small Wonder and capture the that particular aesthetic. Yeah, because I think whatever cursed camera that they shot that on, actually, <laughs> it was shooting some sort of alternate reality that we, for fear of tearing the fabric of the universe open, cannot do again. You cannot open that box. If they did it again, it would just be Megan. Yeah, so I guess we already did it. It's just Megan, and God, I wish that Vicky got the opportunity to just kill everyone in her life, because they all deserved it. <laughs> yeah, it would, you'd be rooting for Megan if it was a small wonder reboot. <laughs> Absolutely. Just, Absolutely. Yeah, fucking finally. <laughs> <laughs> you deserve this. After they've wiped you for the 50th time, 
You deserve uh, this. Thank girl. you. That's what triggers it. Is he's bend over my 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 knee? You're getting a spanking, and then she just rips off his fucking knee. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, that's what the world needs. All right, folks, that's Gen X for you. Um, that's Gen X. Thank you We're all for Gen listening. Exit. Thank you all for listening, and be sure to do the things. Live your life. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. do the um, things rate review subscribe you can find us on tiktok you can find us on instagram we're so happy to be back after our little hiatus thank you so much for giving us the time to focus on ourselves focus on our families get through the holidays and we're so excited to be back in action in your earbuds because it was the dark months so see you next week because it was on, because it was on, rate, review, and subscribe to, because it was on. Whoop, 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 whoop.